You're listening to the Hippie Haven Podcast. I'm Callie, and it's my life mission to empower you with the knowledge and tools you need to spark positive change in your community. If you're new here, I'm the owner of Bestowed Essentials and Hippie Haven. I started Bestowed Essentials just over three years ago, and today our handmade, eco-friendly personal care and cleaning products can be found on the shelves of over 200 stores across the U.S. and Canada. Bestowed Essentials is one of the 15 winners of the Stacy's Rise Project Class of 2020, and we are also recognized by FedEx as one of their top 100 small businesses in the U.S. for two years in a row. In December 2019, my team and I opened Hippie Haven, a zero-waste store and community space in Rapid City, South Dakota. Of course, I also host this Hippie Haven podcast, and we release new episodes every Wednesday, which you can get instantly downloaded to your phone for easy listening by subscribing to the Hippie Haven podcast on any of the major podcasting apps. You can find the show notes and transcript for every episode on hippiehavenpodcast.com. You can also learn more about me on our website. You can follow along on Instagram at hippiehavenshop or subscribe to our YouTube channel to see more behind the scenes at both of our Earth Conscious companies. Today's episode is brought to you by The Futon Shop. The Futon Shop is a California family-owned company. They've been handcrafting natural and organic futon mattresses, bed mattresses, pillows, and sleep covers since 1976. All of their handcrafted organic futons and mattresses are made with 100% certified GOLS, GOTS, and USDA certified fibers, and they come with a 30-night comfort guarantee. Visit hippiehavenpodcast.com forward slash the futon shop to find your new mattress today. My guest today is Martha Hunt Handler. She's been an advocate for wolves for more than 20 years and currently serves as board president at the Wolf Conservation Center in New York. Martha grew up dreaming about wolves and believes her role in this lifetime is to be a voice for nature. Martha's been an environmental consultant, a magazine columnist, an actress, a polar explorer, and more. She is also the author of the newly released book called Winter of the Wolf. We'll learn more about that in this episode. Today we're talking about wolf conservation, the role humans play on the environment, growing through grief, and more. So let's get started. Martha, tell me about yourself, your education, and how you got into wolf conservation. Okay, so I grew up in northern Illinois, um, pretty backwoods at the time, and I spent a lot of time in the woods um, by myself, where I could actually hear animals speaking to me which I didn't realize was so strange until I told a friend who laughed at me. Usually these voices were telling me about sort of impending doom. The area was being clear cut for homes and everything was pretty upset. Um, But when this friend laughed at me, those, those abilities sort of started going away and the voices got quieter. Um, I graduated high school when I was 16 because um, I wanted to go out of state and my father wouldn't pay for me unless it was in state. So um, I became emancipated, ended up in Steamboat, Colorado. And the same thing was happening there. And I was also feeling very anxious because a corporation had bought the area and was building huge, tall buildings um, in what had been like the historical area. It was sort of sad to watch the whole place start to crumble. So I went to school at 
in Boulder at University of Colorado and made up a major called environmental conservation. I graduated and then worked in that field being a consultant in um, San Francisco, DC, in Los Angeles. And when I was in Los Angeles, I got a call that changed my life and had me, caused me to write my book. But ever since I was very young, I had dreamed of wolves, but they always came as teachers, sort of showing me something that I would have missed otherwise. Um, so it was definitely a teaching aspect to it. And I think the lesson was for me was get back in line with your spirituality and you already know what to do in this situation. So it was just kind of a call out of like, yeah, you've moved away from yourself and you need to get back into yourself. And when we, um, in 1996, we moved from Los Angeles to New York and I started hearing wolves, which was just very strange because they haven't been in New York since the late 1800s when they were all eradicated. And so I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I walked back into the woods behind my house one day and followed the howls and came to an enclosure with three wolves in it next to a trailer. And I knocked on the door and met the founder of what was going to be called the Wolf Conservation Center. Um, the founder is Alain Grimald. She's a very impressive, at the time she was very young. She was still in her twenties. Um, she's a French concert pianist. She knew that given her lifestyle, because she plays about 200 concerts a year all over the world, she would never be able to live in one place very long or have a family. But she had become psychically connected to a wolf at one point in her life, and it told her that wolves were in great jeopardy. So she decided to move to America and open up this wolf center. I was very taken by this. It was like a dream come true to be able to actually do some, give something back to wolves when they've been giving to me their whole life. And so she asked me to help her. And that was 20 plus years ago. So it's been a great, great run for me. That is an incredible story. Can you tell me more about the work that you guys are doing at the Wolf Conservation Center? Yes. Yeah, so our mission is threefold. We educate people about wolves. We have about 16,000 people that come to our center every year. And then we also teach remotely. And we basically explain how they're the top of the food chain and what they do affects the entire rest of an ecosystem. And we advocate on their behalf. So if there is a legislation that's pending, we can tell people what the legislation is and we can have them sign petitions or write to their legislators directly. And we do that um, via our website and Facebook um, and Instagram. And that has been hugely successful because we have, I think, close to 6 million Facebook followers now. So it's a, it's a lot of people that have a, a say in legislation that never really had it before. And thirdly, we are part of the Species Act, Survival Species Act for the Mexican gray wolves and the red wolves. So the Mexican gray wolves were down to only six in the world and the red wolves were down to 14. And in both cases, the animals were all brought into captivity. And from those small numbers, we've been genetically working to bring the species back. So it's, it's a huge effort on all of our parts, um, the other centers that do what we do. We trade wolves if they're, you know, if we need a genetic match between two just to have better genetics. Um, 
and we breed and pre-release. So breeding has actually gone like sadly to a frozen zoo. We are um, doing artificial inseminations. We are freezing egg and sperm to bank them. Both of these cases are not taking um, adult wolves, but the Mexican program is allowing pup foster. So what happens in a cross foster situation is we take a pup or two from one of our packs that was just born. Eyes are so close that I haven't imprinted on mom yet. And we put it into a wild den where she had pups at the same time. And we know that because they're radio collared. And if they stay in one place for very long, that's usually what it means is happening. And the, the mom just immediately starts taking care of the new pup. And if we can, we'll take one or two of hers out so that we are really changing up the genetics. So it's pretty fascinating. We're all sad that we're to this point, but I know I try to keep positive and believe that we're going to bring these two species back. You mentioned that wolves are at the top of the ecosystem. Can you go into more detail about that and what that means? Sure. Um, I highly recommend anyone watch the um, video, How Wolves Change Rivers. And it's about the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone, which happened in 1995. At the time, Yellowstone, if you had visited it, you would have seen a lot of grasslands because all of the, the big herbivores, so anything with a hoof, so the, the elk and the deer and the bison, because there was no predator around, they just overgrazed everything. And it actually caused a lot of rivers to dry up and floodlands to happen because there weren't any trees that were big enough to hold the rivers in their banks or to cause the rivers to flow into banks. They would just fall in the grasslands and cause a flood at most. So this made those populations grow way too big for the amount of land they had. And it also caused things like beavers didn't have trees to knock down, so they disappeared. The songbirds didn't have trees to hang out in, so they disappeared. Um, and then everything below that, the rabbits, the everything was impacted. You basically had a huge park full of these hoofed animals and nothing else. So that was their idea when they decided to release the wolves. They needed to do something to try to bring back the landscape to what it had once been. And miraculously, in just, you know, like 10 years, you saw a huge difference. And that's why the the video is called How Wolves Change Rivers, because the, the rivers came back um, flowing better than anyone had seen them in a very, very long time. And the numbers of those big hoofed animals decreased as the wolves were able to get what they could of them. And a bunch of other animals came back. So it was just this uh, an amazing story and one that we don't get to visually see so often. But this was a good chance, a good wake up call for a lot of states because they're still being hunted. And it's it's usually because the, the hunters don't like them because they want to go after the hoofed animals and they don't want less of them. But the truth is it makes those herds so much stronger because, I mean, wolves are, you know, 70 to 90 pounds. So they're lucky if they can take down a young one, an old one, a diseased one, um, an injured one. Taking a healthy one down is impossible for them. So they really do good things um, for their prey population. So it's an amazing success story. 
When you say that wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone, had the previous population died out naturally or had it been humans that had caused wolves to disappear from Yellowstone? Humans across our entire landscape. I mean, I think there was at one point 300,000 wolves in every single state except Hawaii. Yeah, as soon as the white man came over, they basically decided they were vermin and had to go and they took them almost completely out. Do you have other examples besides this Yellowstone one about how um, the growing human population has impacted the wolf population in the U.S.? So it's, you know, it's hugely controversial, but there are some really wonderful people working to make everyone sort of come together on this because for so long, the ranchers and the hunters sort of had this shoot, shovel, and shut up, like just kill the wolves, don't worry about the regulations, and just bury them quickly and be done with it. And I think, you know, we're working really hard to get them to see that there are way, there are so many ways to stop wolves from preying on your sheep and your cattle. Like, you know, for example, there used to be range riders that would just, you know, on horseback, just constantly be circling the range. That's certainly enough to keep a wolf away. They do not like humans at all. They wouldn't come anywhere near it. There's also flagging, which is just putting flags up around where your animals are. Um, there's also training the animals to stay together um, because if they're together, the wolves won't go after a huge, but if they're on public lands and they're scattered all over the place, they're very vulnerable to predation. This has been something that's coming up more and more now. The, the amount of money that goes into Yellowstone because of people going to see wolves, um, I think they're saying eight to $12 million a year in visitor revenue solely because these people want to see wolves because it's about the only place in the world that you can go to see a wolf. And when you go, you know, you wake up at the crack of dawn, you're standing in snow, everyone's looking through a spotter. And I mean, the wolves are like a mile and a half, two miles away. They're little dots, but there's just thousands of people that are watching them. It's really pretty exciting. And I think it's made the rest of the the United States sort of wake up about how much people do want to see wolves back on their lands. So like for the first time it's in Colorado, it's going to be on their ballot. Um, if they want to bring wolves back, they're coming naturally. So they need to quickly make a decision about what they're going to do. People are just like protesting and having marches for this. I mean, it's very, very exciting because I feel like just because of this video and a lot of increased recognition um, in the science field about how important they are, it's really helped the cause and turns people's minds around. You mentioned earlier when you were telling your story, you mentioned legislation. And I'm curious with, you know, getting wolf hunting banned, how that's able to be enforced, especially like in the example you mentioned earlier, you know, farmers and ranchers shooting wolves on their own land. How is, how, how can that be stopped? Well, a lot of them have collars. So if they find the wolf with a collar shot, there's huge fines if it's in a state that you're not allowed to take out a wolf. If a rancher suspects that it was a wolf, they can call the Fish and Wildlife Service. There's an investigation done. If they can prove that it was a wolf, which it's not impossible to prove because there's bite marks and they can measure those. Um, they will get reimbursed for the cost of that animal. Can people hunt them and no one knows about it? For sure. But 
I think more and more people are waking up that that might not be the best thing to do. And the fines are, you know, substantial. So hopefully this helps. I mean, we're always going to lose a few that we just have no idea what happened to them. But yeah, I mean, we're hopeful. So it sounds like education is is a better way to go than enforcement, probably. Yes, definitely. <laughs> education is definitely key. And, you know, there's there's a few people in particular that are really showing up to these meetings, holding them and like going back to these ranchers and living with them and coming to understand, because I think, you know, there was, you know, on the wolf side, people were sort of like, you're going to go slaughter this animal anyway. I mean, is it really that big of a deal if a wolf takes it out, especially if you're getting reimbursed for it. But from living with some of these ranchers came to understand that, you know, they're responsible for these animals and they don't want them hurt. And they, Yes, they're going to slaughter them at some point, but until they do, they don't want anything to happen to them. They really feel responsible. I think that was a wake-up call for wolf people that, okay, we need to listen to these people and we can make this work for everybody, but we certainly can't if we can't even be in the same room together, but that's changing. And you mentioned earlier how the wolf population has just been decimated since the white man came here to the United States. Do you have numbers on what the wolf population looked like before these lands were stolen from the indigenous people and, and what those numbers were just a few decades ago before the wolf conservation efforts really started um, to become more mainstream and then kind of what the wolf numbers in the U.S. are now today. I mean, yeah, it varies. There are like the places that have the most wolves are Alaska and then the states to our north that border Canada because Canada's also got plenty of them. So Michigan, Wisconsin, Wyoming, Idaho. Yeah, also all those states along the top. So from a population of say like 300,000 when, when white man first came, we probably have... 5% of that left, something like that. Oh my it, gosh. I mean, yeah, it's pretty small. I mean, where they are, they're doing pretty well, but they're always under threat. And like today, so the Mexican wolves that we, uh, the Mexican gray wolves that we're part of the species plan for uh, have gone from six and now they think there's about 130. And that's been, you know, 20 years of wolf reintroductions and watching them carefully and getting the genetics up. It's a huge algorithm of who's going to mate with who and all this. The red wolves who originally were found with 14, there's only 10 left in the wild because in North Carolina, they're fighting this so strongly that they haven't allowed wolf reintroductions at all. And of those 10, we don't believe any of them are breeders. So that's a huge problem. But as you know, as we mentioned before, it's education. So um, a lot of the universities in North Carolina have groups now that have gotten involved to try to get these numbers back up and get these some laws taken back off the buff books. So we're we're hopeful that that's going to happen and the reintroductions can start again. And you have a new book that's coming out soon called Winter of the Wolf. I'd love to learn more about the book and, and the inspiration behind writing it. When I was in my early 40s, I got a call that changed my life, which was that my best friend's 12-year-old son was found hanging from a belt in his closet. And she and I had always been very spiritual. Our mothers were good friends. We were really brought up strongly with the idea that souls are here for the time that they're supposed to be here to learn the lessons they need to learn, and then they move on. And that can be a little time or a long time. 
but when this boy Brennan died, it was like I, neither one of us could get back to our beliefs. It just didn't seem possible to move on from then, and it didn't seem possible that Brennan had enough time to learn anything or grow in any way, given that he was only 12. So I started initially just journaling, just trying to deal with the fact that I felt like I wasn't a very good friend to her because I didn't know what to say or do. And I also just was sort of upset that that I couldn't get over this death. And in time, probably about six months passed, and all of a sudden her son, I could hear his voice in my head, and he wanted me to write a novel using his story. And I kept telling him, but I don't really know your story. But he was sort of like, if you just sit down and you start writing, I'll tell you my story. And so, although this is a work of fiction, it doesn't have, besides the actual death, it doesn't have a lot to do with Brendan's life. It's really the sister of a boy who looks like he committed suicide. It's a mystery, so I won't tell you, you know, if that is actually how he died. And she's feeling very stuck that she can't really grieve for him because if, if he did kill himself, then she feels like she didn't know him at all because he wasn't depressed as far as she knew he wasn't having any issues. And so it just made absolutely no sense to her. Um, she ends up going sort of on a journey with her best friend to figure out if there's any other explanation. They go on a long search. They talk to everybody that he was with in the last, say, week of his life. They do a big shamanic ritual to see if they can get in touch with him. And it's just really a book. It, it's about so much. I mean, it's about this girl being following her intuition, which is my recommendation for everybody to like, just tap into that, that piece of you that already knows what you should be able, you know, what you should do if something, if you're in a good situation or a bad situation or the person in front of you doesn't maybe have your best interests um, at heart. And just really following that deep inner intuition of yours. And so this young girl being is able to do that against everyone's wishes. And you sort of follow her from a place of profound grief to, I mean, coming out on the other side, you know, understanding that you have to be grateful for the time that a soul was with us and think of all the positive and wonderful things that you gain from having that soul in your life, rather than thinking of what you're missing because that's never coming and it's just not even worth going there. She just grows a lot um, throughout the book and you just kind of follow somebody that's also opening herself up to understanding more about her mother and her father and her two other brothers who she had kind of closed out and um, had judged them, I would say. And so she has to sort of reckon that she wasn't the only one that lost something yeah and there's wolves in there that make an appearance that may or may not be her dead brother yeah so i think it's really about being woken up and trusting yourself and realizing that spirits as energy can't ever really die they can only transform to a different energy source so yeah in a nutshell that's my book and you've had numerous experiences in your life where, you know, being able to speak with animals and wolves in particular and hearing Brendan's voice in your head. What do you think that you learned from these experiences and, and why do you think that these spirits or, or souls or energies chose to communicate with you in particular? I think it's really being open to them. I don't believe I have any special gift at all. I think I just, when it started happening, I believed in it so 
I mean, I didn't, you know, you just think it's, well, everyone can hear this voice. I didn't even think anything of it. And now I'm like, I really want to communicate with our wolves, but also with my dogs. Um, and so I'm, you know, relearning this stuff myself. And as I'm reading these books, I'm realizing, you know, it's, I know all this stuff. I know all this stuff. It's just, you know, going to that deep place and, and believing that I can hear that animal in front of me. And it, First, you might be putting words in its mouth, and then you'll start realizing that those words aren't your words. You wouldn't have said something in that way, and you realize, oh my God, this is, I'm really talking to this animal. Yeah, I highly recommend anyone to try it because it's pretty magical for sure. These resources that, that you're currently learning from, what are these resources for other people who are interested in, in opening up to this possibility? Um, what is the one I'm reading right now? I think it's called Animal Speaks. Like becoming Doctor Doolittle <laughs> is one of my favorite ones, and now there's also like if you go on YouTube and you put you know animal communicator, there's a lot of different people because everyone's sort of got different ways of doing it, and um, it depends what is most open in your body. So if you're someone that's very visual, you might just get all visuals. It might be, it might look like a movie of your dog running and going in water. And it's trying to tell you that this is where I want to go today. If you're very sensitive to smells, you might get your answers in, in a smelling sort of way. If you are very sensitive to touch, the animal might be stroking you at a certain place to tell you they feel like, you know, something isn't right with your stomach or something like that. And other people it's hearing, it can also be words that you can actually see like a typewriter writing away words. So everyone has got their own unique system or like one sense is a little stronger than the other senses. And this is the one the animals will choose to come through to communicate with you. That is fascinating stuff. Where can we go to, uh, to buy your book and to learn more about Wolf Conservation Center and the other work that you do? Um, so my website is MarthaHuntHandler.com. And interesting because I just found out not too long ago that the word hunt in Estonian means wolf. So I'm basically oh. Martha Wolf Handler. <laughs> <laughs> um, so MarthaHuntHandler.com. Um, and there's stuff there about the Wolf Center, but the Wolf Center's um, website is nywolf.org. So NewYorkWolf.org. Um, and yeah, and the Wolf Center's on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, I think those are the two best. And you can buy my book from my site. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, any, any place. It should be everywhere at this point. Perfect. And we'll include links for all of that in the show notes of this episode. And Martha, thank you so much for your time today. It was delightful to be with you, Kaylee. Thank you. And that's a wrap. I'll be back next week with an episode about a small business working to offset the carbon footprint created by online shopping. Remember, knowledge is power, so if you learned something from today's episode, share it with someone you know who'd also benefit from this free resource. If you share the podcast on social media, don't forget to tag and follow us at Hippie Haven Shop, or my personal Instagram is at hippie.ceo. This podcast is produced with the help of my communications coordinator, Ray Lynn, who also helps produce our Hippie Haven YouTube channel. Subscribe to us on YouTube to see more behind the scenes at our Zero Waste Company. You can also support our environmental advocacy work here at Hippie Haven by leaving a review for this podcast in whichever app you're using to listen, 
or buy us a virtual cup of coffee to keep us going. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash hippie haven to support our work. Thank you so much for spending this time with me, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.